So this here is a good friend, Chris. Chris, I've known you since... 2006. It, it will be 15 years now. 2006. <laughs> this summer. That's nuts. Yeah. Okay. We old. We are old. But uh, Chris Cook, where are you and what's your background? So I am in Bordeaux, France. Uh, we moved here in 2018 with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, I studied at the Alliance Seminary at the same time that John was going to seminary at Eastern. I was at Alliance Theological in New York. Um, we met working at Camp Halawasa, which I'm sure not a few of uh, our friends yeah. come from that place. And uh, it's been a wild ride between here and there. I did a little bit of teaching at... Um, Nyack College, and as well as at the King's Christian High School right there in South Jersey, as well as pastoring a church in California, um, and now being an international worker in France. In Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I went to Eastern. I got biblical studies and then an MDiv, but your undergrad, your undergrad wasn't in biblical studies. I actually think no. your undergrad is pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I got to go to the Richard Stockton College in New Jersey, and I studied criminal justice, um, and I was taking pre-law courses because I was thinking about going down that rabbit trail. Um, but the senior year that I was there, actually, back up, the end of my junior year, I had to take one of those 101 philosophy courses just to fill out the, the, the liberal arts degree. And I took it, and it was called Humor's Logic, Laughter's Wisdom with a professor called um, Dr. Privatello. And we had such a good rapport that the following semester, he signed me into his senior capstone seminar class on Nietzsche. Um, and that's where I really discovered my love for philosophy and logic and really being able to think deeply about things. And actually, at the end of that class, what I ended up doing for my senior thesis in philosophy, which I had never studied before, like that semester, um, was I was doing a rewriting and retelling of Nietzsche's The Antichrist um, with a better theology. Um, and so I rewrote, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages of that into a better Christian theology. Wow. And at the end of that class, someone gave me Kierkegaard's works of love and said, you know, you really sound like this guy. You should probably give him a read. Got my Kierkegaard in the middle of the shelf right there. Yeah, Works of Love. It was that exact copy. You have the same one? No, I've given it away so many times that um, my current copy is a free uh, PDF version from the 40s. It's in public domain. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I, um, I don't remember which one I read first. Anyways, when we were working at that camp, we were both going through seminary at the same time and I said this before, but we would come back and work at the camp every summer and be like, did you read this yet? Read this yet How about this. But I want to say there was a, a good year and a half, maybe two years where my brother included, we kind of would riff on Kierkegaard quite a bit, but I don't remember if I read works of love first or purity of heart first. I don't remember. I feel like I did both at roughly the same time. But why did uh, Kierkegaard stick out for you? So they thought you sounded more like Kierkegaard than a Christian Nietzsche. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is fair. But why did Kierkegaard stick with you then? Um, well, I mean, I actually, I brought it to camp that summer. So I'd already been working at camp for two years. And that was when I was deciding to go to seminary, actually, was um, I was finishing up my undergraduate degree and trying to figure out what to do next. And that was when one of the, my classmates handed me this book and I brought it to camp that summer. And I remember reading it and just being gobsmacked at how much sense the Christian ethic makes mm-hmm. and how these things that I had held on to sort of as dogma before of just like, well, it is this way. And so I just do it actually had some, some underpinnings to them that allow us to stand on something more firm than just sort of like floating it out there. Well, Jesus said it. And so that's good enough, which in a lot of cases is good enough. But when it comes down to the really difficult commands, like love your enemy mm-hmm. do to someone as you would have them do unto you. There's a lot more to it than just a platitude. And I feel like a lot of times in Christian circles, it just sort of feels like this do nothing phrase, like, Oh, love your enemies. And it's like, well, I've never really even had an enemy because I live in a society that's beautiful and lush and like verdant in all senses of the word. So what does that really even mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to really dig down into that and see how, no, this, this thing that I've taken as a, just a platitude actually has a lot of weight. And there's actually no way to dig down deeper under this and sort of like pry that idea up off the floor and get rid of it because it's anchored into something real. Um, and that's what's really stuck with me throughout all the years. And at this point, I don't know that there's something that Kierkegaard that's, has written that I've not read except for like his sermons, because there are people that are now slowly like transcribing individual sermons. Have you read the concept of anxiety, his -hmm. treatment of sin, fear and trembling? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've both read Mm -hmm. fear and trembling at the same time. Um, Yeah. What's the other one? The small one. Sickness unto death. That's the other small one. That's very, I should just pull off all the Kierkegaard. All right, fear and trembling, sickness unto death, mm-hmm. the present age, and the death of rebellion. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Wow, you actually and really then, have read a lot of them. Uh, then there's either or, practicing Christianity. Did you read either or? Yeah, I have. I'm not joking. I think I've literally read his entire bibliography at this point. Um, the I started reading. Um, what was oh he started doing like literary criticism right before he died that's this coming age um and judge for yourself yes and mm-hmm. uh, they get kind of weird but because i think i'm missing some like the danish cultural heritage of like what it is that he's trying to get into and it's like i just don't know enough about 18th century copenhagen to really appreciate what's going on here um but yeah the rest of it either or and practicing christianity are long but there are gems in there mm-hmm. that are very much worth the the digging if you've got the time <laughs> oh yeah well i remember okay we can maybe t- chat about purity of heart and works of love maybe both those are both good 
So sure. I tried to find my original copy of it and I couldn't. I, I must have given it away. But Purity of Heart is one of those books where I feel as though if you understand the title, you understand the whole book. But if you read the whole book, you'll know that the title is like packed because Kierkegaard is, he might have been the first philosopher, Christian philosopher I read, who would take something and then examine it from every single angle, not just come yeah. at it from just one side and then hammer that one side and say, you have to see it this way. He went whole 360 on it. It's a lot of the things that we see written in the scriptures. And that's one thing that we that I've kept from camp now 15 years on. That I remember we came back from seminary at one point and we were both like, I hate that we call it the text. Can we please oh. refer to the, the scriptures? Yeah. And I, I love that and held on to that for years. Um, but the scriptures really are layered with meaning. There are no wasted words. And so when you have something like purity of heart is to will one thing, I feel like a lot of what my upbringing and experience in the church taught me to do was like quantity over quality of like, make sure that you spend this quantity of time yeah. in the scriptures and not necessarily concerned with how deep can you dig into a concept and can you, can you say that you have fully examined purify your heart, ye double-minded. Mm -hmm. Have you really sat down and thought that through as to what that's going to cost you? Um, and I think purity of heart does that. Like it, it drops you in, it sets the stage and it says, okay, we're going to take these five or six words and we're going to see how much of your life this is going to touch. Mm. And it really leaves no rock unturned. And that's what keeps me coming back to, uh, this theologian, this philosopher, this, this Christian. And I, I can't shake him because I, I can't, I can't get out of his arguments, mm -hmm. um, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, purity of heart, the title comes from James, the book of James, where it says, do not be double-minded, which I looked up the word it's dipsukos in Greek, which means D-I-2, Tsukos means mind or even soul. So it's more mm -hmm. than just double-mindedness. It's like you have a split soul if you're trying to love too many things, but not the one thing that's necessary. And Kierkegaard talks about how the only way you can have a purity of heart is if you love the good with a capital G, the capital G good, right? But what I thought was so cool was and maybe this could go to your criminal justice degree as well, is some people don't really love the good. In fact, what they actually do is they love the good and they love the reward for doing good. And I so mean, that's it's the like, classic pitch, right? It's what? That's the classic Christian pitch, right? Well, you want to get into heaven. Yeah. Well, you don't want to go to hell. So you, you will the good out of fear of punishment or you will the good out of seeking the reward. And what I what and again, this what drives me back to Kierkegaard is that that's not really loving God, right? That's you. 
the, the analogy that he gives, particularly for what you had just mentioned. So, you know, you're, you're willing one thing, you're willing the good for the sake of reward. You want to get into heaven. And so you submit yourself to these things that God wants you to do. Kierkegaard gives a great analogy for that. I think chapter five or six of the book where he says, if I love a girl for her money, uh, would anyone really call me a lover? Or would the real lover say, ooh, I love the girl, but there's this issue of the money. If only she could get rid of that somehow so that I could love her purely for herself. Right. And you turn around and you look at all the tracks that get distributed. You look at the way that things are presented from Christians to non-Christians, and it's always like the lure that gets put out in front of people is like, well, you want heaven, don't you? You want some of that. And so that you you sort of set people up for this hollow Christianity right from the beginning. And it's the same thing. I'm sorry, you put me way up on my soapbox and I'm not coming down for a second. Um, it's the same thing when you do the inverse because while you have tracks to say, well, you want heaven, there's other tracks to say, well, you don't want to burn in hellfire for eternity. Mm. And the problem with that is the second, the the exact instant that somebody is convinced that hell doesn't exist all the devotion evaporates because now i don't need to fear punishment and right. so i don't need any of these things that i was doing it's mm -hmm. like you just escaped from a from an abusive relationship of like well you threatened me so i did the things and now i don't believe in the threat anymore so i'm out yeah and i feel like see that with most people as they explain why they left the faith it's like well i didn't believe in hell anymore or i didn't believe in heaven anymore and so then right. all the other stuff with it goes right out the door i never really connected those two as inverses but no you're absolutely right and that's i think that's part of the the drive to maintain the threat of hell in some people Mm -hmm. Is because we don't know if people will act good if there isn't always the threat of punishment. But but here's the thought. Ready? Is um. I really like stages of development. So, Kohlberg was one of those people that said one of the earliest stages is you do what is right because of fear of punishment. That's like the first level. That's like a three-year-old. You would understand that more than I would. But the idea of keeping someone at the same stage of moral development their whole life and using fear as a motivator for right living their whole life, that doesn't seem to, to jive with me. But Kierkegaard even goes, I mean, in this, he talks about um, the reward disease. I like that. Mm -hmm. That's a great subtitle. The egocentric service of the good. This is the the subtitle to some of the chapters. Commitment to a certain degree. Some people love the good up until they have to start to suffer for it. But the idea that you have to be willing to suffer for the good if you really do love the good. This is is he understood as an ethicist, Kierkegaard? Or is this just one of the books where he goes into ethics? Well, I mean, I feel like it's really important at the base that we have to, how do I, how do I frame this? We're amongst friends. So you'll forgive me if I'm wrong, but 
but putting in putting him in his cultural and historical context and his reactions against the dominant uh, zeitgeist of the day. In so there was this happening like world spirit where everything is one, and Kierkegaard is a radical reaction to that in pursuit of the individual. And so in contrast to this sort of all-encompassing, everything is part of the same grand narrative kind of zeitgeist is literally the word that spawned in the day. He's constantly writing in response to that saying, no, we are individuals. We are individuals anchored before God. We are individuals responsible for our individual opinions and our individual reactions. And it's our individual relationship with God that matters, not our inclusion in a larger Christian society. And therefore, we need to evaluate our actions. We need to evaluate our beliefs on an individual level in order to authentically live out whatever it is that we say we're going to do, which is why he gets lumped in with the existentialists all the time is because he's a reaction to that modernist um, monopolizing worldview of trying to create a philosophy that encompasses everything. He was like, I'm going to create a philosophy that encompasses the individual. Gotcha. And so I think that shift gets really played out in this because maybe it is enough to use heaven and hell as tools to control the masses when you're in that sort of um, broader societal vision. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, we broadly speaking need to move the society this way. And we can do that with these levers that we're given with our belief system. But I think Kierkegaard's reacting to that and saying that doesn't move the individual sufficiently far and doesn't place him at the foot of God where he ought to be alone outside right. of the crowd. Um, well, in Kierkegaard, he's the one that says the masses is untruth. Is that how the truth? Yeah. He hates so crowds. Every member of the crowd had the truth by nature of them being in a crowd, whatever truth they had, they would lose. Oh, I love that. That's so good. Yeah. But, it's a, but why? It's a it's so good because it, it puts the culpability back on the individual. Which, but it's exactly that. It's exactly that. That's exactly what Jesus does in John 8 when he says, let he who has no sin throw the first stone. He doesn't let the group maintain a group identity. Now it's like, oh, you as an individual. Yeah, and that's that's exactly his point, because so many people then, so many people in France today, so many people in the U.S. now hide behind their group identity of, well, I'm a Christian. And so clearly God is going to be happy with whatever it is that I'm doing. And it's oh. like, maybe not. Maybe we slow down a little bit and we say, are you as an individual pursuing God, picking up your cross and following him and marching up the hill, whatever that hill is that he's called you to walk up? I remember hearing um, somebody I know down here, just outside of Philly, he was talking about how, in some ways, Kierkegaard was one of the first psychologists in the sense that he was often mm -hmm. talking about, listen to your conscience. You have to listen to that inner dialogue that rails against you when you start to do something with impure motives. I mean, back to purity of heart. It's interesting to think about him as an early psychologist before it was even a thing. Yeah, and that was even said in our 
when I was in undergrad and when I was taking that class on Nietzsche, one of the things that becomes hard to distinguish between the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th is that the line between psychology and philosophy can tend to blur. Like, is Jung a philosopher or is he a psychologist? Right. Or is he kind of both? So is Kierkegaard a philosopher or is he a psychologist? He's one of the first people to talk about anxiety that ever, like he seriously dealt with the concept of anxiety and he didn't coin the word, but he certainly infilled it with new meaning. And I think right. that spawned a lot of later conversations. Um, but I think that actually really ties into this quote that I pulled up for you because I've got my uh, copy of Purity of Heart right here. And this is relating back to what I had said about the connection between um, hell and its existence and whether or not that matters. He says, therefore, if there were no punishment in that if lurks double-mindedness, if there were no punishment in that if hisses double-mindedness, if there were no punishment or if indeed there was a man who could convince him that eternity's punishment was a fantasy, or if it became common practice to think in this fashion, or if he could travel to a foreign country where it was a common practice, or if cowardly and hypocritical superstition could discover a cheap means of propitiation. Look at all the double-mindedness. Note that it can just as easily seek its consolation in unbelief as in superstition. Yeah. And it's like, this is exactly why people say they leave the church. It's like, well, I wasn't scared of hell anymore. Yeah. And it's like, well, duh, that was never supposed to keep you here. <laughs> I wonder what Kierkegaard would have to say today. He would probably have more attacks on Christianity toward just like at the end of his life. But then, okay. When you think about purity of heart is the will one thing, the book as a whole, what is the, one of the main points that you draw from it? If you first experienced this book, like 15 years ago, roughly when I did as well, mm -hmm. ish, what is the thing that pops out at you? You can be stable. You can be stable. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the thing. The last confinement, the big one, the big one we did here in France, I started reading Spinoza's Ethics. Really? Um, Good for you. Which was enlightening to say the least. I think that people say he's the first atheist, but whatever he is, it wasn't an atheist. I'm not sure exactly what he's got going on in there. Right. But he's not an atheist in your like Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens kind of way of being an atheist. No. Um, but one of the things that he really made me think about was that there was a quote in there somewhere, and I, my book's in the other room. Um, but it was, most people are functioning polytheists. Mm -hmm. Because, and I think Kierkegaard would call that double-mindedness. That when your will is divided, you're essentially, it's like, if we think of God as whatever value, whatever thing sits at the top of the hierarchy for you, if you don't have purity of heart, that thing is going to change. So just to give a completely banal example, if you're hungry and you get to a certain point of hunger, you like archipelago right now, and apparently you can get to some crazy places with hunger. That's a side note. Um, like if you're hungry, and you don't have a higher value than satiating that hunger, 
you're going to do whatever it takes to satisfy that feeling, that desire. But if you had something that was even more valuable to you, you could put your hunger aside and you could have something higher up the chain. And I think what the beauty of the way that Kierkegaard is describing the good with a capital G, the way that he describes God, is it gives you a pattern of being that is ultimately stable, ultimately with a big U. Um, and no matter what circumstance you put me in, I am the same person. Mm. And you don't have to wonder what it is you're going to get from me. If you put me in gulag, I'm going to be the same person that I am out here in freedom. If you put me in a situation where I'm in poverty, I'm going to be the same person. Mm -hmm. And that person is someone who has the good as their highest value, as God as their highest value. And I think that creates an incredible amount of stability because you don't have to wonder anymore what if, because all your what ifs are done. Mm -hmm. Well, and you have something by which to grade what's important or not. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think it was Kierkegaard or some other people, but there's the idea that idolatry means if you do not bow to one God, you will spend your life trying to bow down to a thousand of them. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to submit to a thousand demands on your time and intention and devotion. Well, even two. Yeah, even two idols. Even two, <laughs> even two is smart because what... Think about any time in your life that was really difficult. Why was it really difficult? It's because you were stuck between two things and you didn't know which one to do. You know, you have a, you have a fork in the road. You have something, we say it all the time. It's tearing me apart. Um, the sense of feeling lost is because your, your, your actual psyche, your, your intellect is stuck with two gods that are essentially warring in your mind and you don't know which one is superior and so you don't know the course of action to take. And so you'll literally say, it's tearing me apart. And they say it in movies all the time. I think Anakin says it in one of the prequels. One of those great prequel films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what to do, Padme, and it's tearing me apart. And it's like, well, yeah, because you don't have, you don't have purity of heart. You're stuck between the two orders and you don't know what to do and you're about to go kill a whole bunch of kids. That's amazing. The idea of being torn apart is, or the, the fact that somebody can verbalize that already tells you that you have a heart with divided passions. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I could, I can kind of see it. I mean, I, people say that all the time when we're trying to discern between two options. Mm-hmm. It's exactly that. Well, then, I think when I think of purity of heart as the will one thing, I often not only think about how you have to be willing to suffer for the good, which I, to me, that's the capstone of somebody's real devotion, right? To the good with a capital G. But when I think of purity of heart... Purity seems like a, a strange word for me in some sense, because purity that has to do with cleanliness, like clean and unclean heart. But I, I think I like the word singular 
or maybe purity is the right word because pure p-u-r is the greek word for fire and so you're setting your heart on fire and you're burning off all the unnecessary whims or passions around it it's one of like a purge purgation is that if we think about who we are and we think about what it is that keeps us double-minded, what are the things that we want that aren't the good? How much of that is dead and needs to be cut off and burnt? And what would happen if we bravely excise those pieces of us that we know are dead? Right. Knowing that it will be painful, knowing that, you know, every surgery is immensely painful. What would happen to us if we did that? I mean, I first off, I would probably say we'd be unlocking enormous potential, not just for ourselves, but I mean, the world around us would just improve. Now, do you remember, does Kierkegaard talk a bit about being misled about what is good or not good like we can unconsciously lie to ourselves about what's really the good and there is a whole lot in the beginning of the script beginning of this particular book about self-deception and so oh, the idea that there is progressive levels of sanctification that we walk through as believers when he's talking about repentance early on mm -hmm. he talks about the levels of repentance that you can go through and how the longer that we live in a repentant state the more not the more painful it becomes but the more sorrowful it becomes because the same action that we repented of you know 15 years ago carries a different weight um, given our progression in the good. And Kierkegaard says explicitly that you can tell someone's progression in the pursuit of the good based on the sorrow and the amount of repenting that happens. I mean, that's in wow. chapter two, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, it's called Remorse, Repentance, Confession is the mm -hmm. main titles. I mean, I obviously, if you actually want to have the good and serve the good and love the good, of course, you're going to have enormous regret over the seasons of your life when you are in pursuit of the bad. Yeah. I the mean, evil. When you were double-minded, when there was something that was a lesser good that pulled you away from the ultimate good, when there was something that you wasted time, energy, resources pursuing that ultimately wasn't the good or didn't provide the things that the good provides, I think remorse is the proper response right. to that of, and I mean, even my own life, this is something that I've been in the letters that I've been sending back to the States. It's like my prayer updates have been like, I've been reconfessing and re-repenting of things that happened like 20 years ago. Why? Because things that I did as a teen, I repented of in the moment. And I was genuinely repentant in the moment, but it wasn't the, the level of remorse and sorrow that I have now. Oh. Um, like, for instance, this one's come up a few times. Um, but there was a, uh, 
there was a, a moment when I was about 16, 17, something like that, probably 16, that um, I was at a birthday party. I was at the pastor's house of um, the church that I grew up in. And his daughter took the, it was a pool party. It was in summer. She took my t-shirt and she threw it in the pool. And I recognize now having been a camp counselor and now being married in, in my 30s that that was probably flirting. But I took it as a charge to my dominance as a, as a male. And so I choked her, drug her over to the pool and made her fish it out. Wow. And the remorse that I have for that today is different than the remorse that I had for that um, at the time. Because at the time I felt bad that I had done something and hurt my friend mm. because she was my friend. And I felt bad that I had caused her physical pain. But when I look at that now, and why is it that that memory comes back? Why is it that I don't let go? It's because the young man that I was mm -hmm. thought that that was the appropriate action. Mm. And so what I don't feel remorse for, well, I, of course, I feel remorse for hurting my friend, but not in the same sense mm. as, I, as I feel remorse for the young man who is confused, lost, and ultimately double-minded and thinking he needed to protect himself mm -hmm. even from those people who were closest to him. Mm -hmm. And like that young man was me. And like, there's a certain sense that, you know, I've written about that in a letter. I said it in a sermon that I did for a church last week because it's something that's been coming back to me is like, the damage that we end up doing to other people is often a result of our own inner turmoil. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I felt so unsafe in my life in general, mm -hmm. that that seemed like the logical option when it so obviously is not with just a little bit of reflection. Mm -hmm. um, it's just really sad. It brings me to a level of remorse of sadness for the situation, sadness for that friend group, sadness for that friend. Sadness what that meant for my parents, like, because mm. here they are watching their son do this thing in front of all the church people. And it's like, you would think that putting someone into a situation like pool party, you would know what you were going to get. And that's what I mean when I say I feel like purity of heart really brings the stability. because It gives you, mm. it gives you enough base to put down to know that when you get put in that situation, how should you react? If, if Jesus is who he says he is, and if God is who he says he is, and that is a reality, and we are aiming at that reality, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Well, and it gives you your answer. And it's not choke somebody and drag them over to the pool. It's, I don't know, laugh, smile. You're not under threat. Like, it's okay. And it's just, that's the world I would prefer to live in mm -hmm. you know not one where the the god of the moment is honor because honor is right. a horrible god and i mean first off that's very profound that you even shared that so thank you but in that in that sense it makes me think about kierkegaard being one of the first christian psychologists of sometimes we don't realize that 
you're not really serving the good with a capital G here. What you're actually serving is your ego. Mm -hmm. And ego can be a horrible God to try to chase after. And so what do you do when your heart is split between wanting to love the good and your own ego that hates being dishonored in front of a group of people? There's a lot going on there. Well, I mean, there's a there's a quote because there's a chapter on that in period of heart that the good and honor are not the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I could probably take a minute and try to find it. But there's there's yeah. that moment where he's describing like. If you were the most honorable man in the entire world, you're a slave to everyone's perceptions. And you're not willing to Oh, that's good. so fact, good. That's why he's such a good author. If you're a slave to honor, then you're a slave to everyone else's perceptions. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, and then that goes back to the scandal of the crucifixion. It's like Jesus completely voluntarily chose humiliation rather than honor my goodness that's why the gospel of mark is so profound it's the anti-coronation service in mark's gospel yeah i mean it's it's nothing is wasted in the scriptures literally nothing like every word counts and that's what i feel like kierkegaard gave me as a christ follower was I'm going to take five words and I'm going to spend 300 pages talking about Absolutely. Them. Yeah. And it, it, it values that. Like it, it, it's worth it. It's worth 300 pages and probably more. Mm -hmm. That's why I also really enjoy works of love because he does that more explicitly when it's you shall love your neighbor. But then in the opening parts of this book, he says, the emphasis will be on you shall love. You shall love your neighbor. You shall love. It's like, let's have this sentence and a chapter with an emphasis on every individual word and it'll explode. Like words and sentences, they can have fireworks in them if you just dive in. What's this? I don't know if my camera's high enough quality, but this yeah. is what I just said, the thing on this. Love hopes all things, and yet it's not put to shame. Yeah, and it's just you get into this chapter, and it's just banger after banger mm -hmm. after banger. Where you're like, that hurts. That's going to be really hard to live out. That is going to be really hard to actually manifest that in the world as some kind of reality that I live in. Yeah. I remember my favorite line of that one, love hopes all things and yet is never put to shame. I've actually quoted that chapter in the past year. I remember I said how Kierkegaard talks about no one in heaven will be dishonored or the scorn or the laugh of all the angels for hoping that his friend will get into heaven also. And if his no friend doesn't end up in heaven, no one would laugh at him for wanting his friend to be there, for hoping that his friend would be there as well. Well, and the, this, the, the beauty of that, things. the beauty of that is that we so often misuse hope. And he calls us out for that right in the middle of that chapter that we often say hope and we mean wish fulfillment. And most, most atheists here in France mock Christians for that because it's like, 
Well, isn't isn't your whole belief system just primitive wish fulfillment and Bronze Age fairy tales? Like, isn't that your thing? Where like you just right. want these things to happen, and it's like no, 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 no. That's that's not what hope is to me. Hope is the expectation that good is possible, and the world, society, nothing works if we don't have that as a base. Everything yes. falls. There's no apart. trust. Yeah. There's no trust, but there's also no action. Like hmm. despair, the giving up of the possibility of the good is inaction. Like it kills any positive moving forward that you could do. The very idea of progress that is so lauded in our mm-hmm. current iteration of society that we're moving towards, and I think really needs to get called out. Like you say progress. Progress necessitates goal. What goal? Mm-hmm. Where are we going? Because it's not progress if we don't have something in mind that we're moving towards. If we don't have something in mind, it's just wandering. And wandering is in progress. And so the expectation of the good, this, this hope that we have, it moves us and it motivates us and it pushes us out to take risks and it moves us outside of our comfort zone. And you, we do this in small ways all the time, but what's to stop us from ramping that up to the highest thing. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we only go so far? Right. Well, and I was thinking about this earlier today, thinking about what is the difference between kingdom and empire? Right. So in Christian circles, there's the question of what is the kingdom of God versus the empire of man? And in light of the George Floyd, uh, well, actually it's Derek Chauvin trial being announced that he was convicted on all three charges. That led me to think, I know that there are people that are furious that Derek Chauvin was held to being guilty on all three charges. There's some people furious about that. But then I was curious, like, what about kingdom of God versus empire of man? And my thought was, Empire, you know you're dealing with empire as soon as you have an acceptable sacrifice that you're willing to make. And I feel like if you're if you're thinking anybody can be a casualty and that's okay, then you're already in service of the empire. But nowhere in the kingdom of God is I don't know, are we allowed to sacrifice other people? in pursuit of the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Well, there's only one person we can sacrifice. Well, he voluntarily did that. Yeah. No, I meant ourselves. Oh, that too. Yeah. There's the, the, the interesting paradox of he who wishes to keep his life will lose it. He who loses his life will save it. So there's really only one person we can sacrifice and it's us. Therefore, my brothers, I urge you to give of yourselves as living sacrifices. And it's like, that is the weird paradox we live in as Christians is that we're not allowed to will the good to a certain degree. That we are convinced, we are utterly and unshakably, well, not unshakably, there's, there's doubt that comes in all the time, but we are utterly convinced that if 
we were to pursue kingdom, and if we were to pursue Jesus, and if we were to all live this way, we would literally have heaven on earth. And so why, why would I pursue anything less? Why would I, why would I be willing to sacrifice the good heaven on earth for the sake of some reward now, for the sake of some honor now, or to escape some small might of suffering now when literal heaven and hell is at stake. Right. And I mean, in, in our quarter where we live, I can't show you out a window because it's dark here. Um, but in our quarter where we live in the city, um, there are refugees fleeing civil war in Africa living under a bridge right next to where I live. There are other people that don't have homes because they chose not to have them anymore. There are other people that are out there because of all the reasons that you can think of that somebody would be in a state of, um, English word is now gone in a state of, uh, precarity. Is that an English word? I don't know that word. Uh, in a precarious position. Precarious. Oh, okay. I got there. It takes some time because now I forget words in two languages. Um, so like they're in all sorts of these different places and it's obvious to me as I look at those folks that some of them are in actual they're in hell right now mm -hmm. from a certain manner of speaking. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination for me looking at those who have chosen to be there. Mm -hmm. Like they've chosen to based on their situation. That this is, this is what I deserve. I don't deserve better than this. And they've chosen this life and it's obvious to me that if you pull that out to the ultimate limit, that there are going to be people that choose hell and there's going to be people that choose heaven. And so you have folks like that who they are more than double-minded because they're pursuing a bunch of different things. But there are other people that are out there, like these folks that are fleeing civil war, and it's like they're hoping to get to what they would consider heaven on earth living in a European Western country. And it's this, it's a weird paradox walking around the lake. Cause we have this huge lake right near where we live. It's probably as big as all three lakes at camp put together. Um, and there's pine trees around it, which makes me feel so at home in a place that's so strange. Mm -hmm. um, but the conversations that you have with them are different based on why they're there. And I feel like as believers, as Christians, we have sold incredibly cheaply and short the beauty of the Jesus way. Oh, We've yeah. said the beauty of the Jesus way gets you into heaven. And it's like, okay, true of limitless value, also true, but not the whole story. Yeah. The Jesus way also gives you something now. 
there's a certain stability, there's a certain predictability, there's a certain surety of how to move through the world that comes with it, that not only gets you the afterlife, whatever that is, because frankly, it's beyond my comprehension to understand eternity, mm -hmm. but will have a tangible, visible impact on today too. And so this life isn't something to be escaped but it's a pilgrimage to be taken and see what you can do on the way. And I think purity of heart gets you there. One of the, as you're talking there too, I, um, you reminded me, I, I actually had, a a few guys that just before COVID we were getting wings like once a month for a couple months and they would end up being these three hour conversations. Remember wings? Remember those? It's just mean. <laughs> um, I'm gonna bring it up. It's like, well, flexing your American delicacies on me. This uh, this one individual said that he went off and he was going partying every so often, and that his parents didn't like it. This is somebody who's out of high school, right? So it's like you're an adult, you make your own decisions. But we're having Jesus conversations over wings, and I said, well. Sometimes some of us have to live an unholy life long enough before we decide to want to live a holy life for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You have to almost some to some sense, like you have to feel the sting on your own of living a double minded life, a split soul life, you could say, for long enough that you're like, you know, what, I'm tired of doing this. So let me tell you about and you the can't first take somebody where they don't want to go, you know? Yeah. You let can me just invite that. Because uh, I don't know if you remember when I first came to camp in 2006, you'd already been there. Just one year ahead and, of you. Yeah. Yeah. But you were like way more wholesome than me at the time. <laughs> and I say that because the night before I came to camp, I was blackout drunk. Yeah. I was watching my friends do all sorts of hardcore drugs. I was watching them carouse around a bonfire. And at the end of that week, I mean, I had been walking with the Lord a bit um, before coming the first, the first time. And I had grown up in the church, so I, I knew what I was supposed to be doing and I knew what to say. Um, but on arriving there, I thought all of you guys were so weird. Like, I had never in my life seen other men, because I was 20, and so I'm going to go ahead and call us men, despite yeah. the fact that now we'll probably look at somebody that's 20 and be like, oh, baby. Yeah. Um, but like, and other men sing, dance, hug, yeah. show affection, care. And I remember the fourth night that we were there, we played Freedom USA. And I, I do believe you were in charge of some of that. Um, and I heard God speak to me. Clear, audible, like, choose which fire you want to be around for the rest of your life. Wow. And I got a vision of my friends, drunk, stoned, doing all sorts of other things. And I got a vision of, well, not a vision, I was literally at... Uh, a different campfire of people who loved 
cared for each other, wanted the best for each other. You know, the other one, people are like knocking each other down, trying to knock each other into the fire because, you know, boys will be boys, I guess. But um, not to excuse that kind of behavior, but it's, I can't figure out why we we're doing that. That's what people were doing. And God said, clear as a bell. Where do you want to be? Choose. And so I mean, you had a double, me, you had double minded in that moment. Yeah. Uh, you had a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was everything that the world had to offer. You know, feel good, any substance you wanted, you know, sexual stuff going on, like all that. And then there was this other place with these weirdos singing, dancing, caring for each other genuinely. And choosing the Jesus way has been so insanely meaningful since then. To have one thing that you follow and to not, not worry what people think, not care about what the, the honor that you might gain from a situation, to not be concerned with what rewards you're going to receive in this life or what punishments you might, you might get, but to know that you're pursuing the highest thing. It brings something. Well, that's a life well lived. That's a meaningful life. Yeah. And that speaks to people, man. And the church gave that up. I don't know why we gave that up. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I just tried to rifle off a few thoughts, but I couldn't. I mean, we're talking with a guy here who's uh, he's 23, 24. His parents are atheists. His grandparents were atheists. He's atheist, too. And we have these wonderful conversations um, because he's one of the most honest atheists I've ever met. Um, and we were talking this week, and he's like, I don't know if following the Jesus way leads to God or not, but I know it leads somewhere. And so I'm going to be walking down it with you guys for a while. Wow. And it's like, dude, I don't know either. Cause I don't know what God means. Like I can't wrap my head around that concept. I don't know what like he's omnipresent, omnipotent, purely good came in the form of a man 2000 years ago because that made sense to him. I don't know what that means, but there's like this wonderful, uh, there's this wonderful thing that happens when you're on this way that I've not found another way to get to. And so why wouldn't you pursue it and see what the limits might be of walking down that road, how much might change, how much power might show up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's one. And somehow that's a catch. I, I don't get it. Well, I think it's probably fair to say there was one, maybe we could finish with this quote. Kierkegaard at one point, he says, he was lamenting that he wasn't well liked as an author in his day. 
So that's why he was jumping around with all these pseudonyms, trying to like publish under this name. Will this name work or this name, right? And then he kind of, I think it's in his journals at one point says, the day will come when people don't want an easy solution, but they will want complexity. Mm-hmm. And then people will enjoy my writings. I'm, this is a paraphrase, but um, well. I think that might be part of it. Is we all want a very simple solution. And I mean, the simple solution is to love the good, which Kierkegaard says is God, which we would say God is revealed in Jesus and Kierkegaard would agree. And that's a simple decision, but that comes, like you said, with a lot of complexity. I don't even know what God, the word means, because we bring in Zeus and all these other things. But you know what? Kind of like the road to Emmaus, you walk this path long enough and you start talking about it and it sets your hearts on fire. Ha! Ah, fire, purity of heart again. Mm-hmm. Oh. Our Why would you leave the path that set your heart on fire? He always shows up in fire, though. Always. That's the thing. Like, yeah. There's something about it. There's something mysterious about that. There's something mysterious about God being the all-consuming fire. And to a certain extent, the more we are transformed into the likeness of Christ and the more that we align with who Christ is, the more we experience eternity here and now, because those are the ideas that don't change. Right. Those are the things that are eternal, that are larger than us, and to a certain extent, are our participation in God. And I think there is also a totally mystical side of Christianity that we have not gotten into in our philosophical discussion, maybe another time. Um, I've been of, diving deep into it for like the past, well, since my hike. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other thing because, like, yeah, Kierkegaard gets you really far with the logic and the how-to and the steps, but when you really start doing it, there's something else that happens too, and it's bigger than you, and you can't hold all of it. And it, it you, religious language is the only thing that starts to even encapsulate what it is that's going on. Yeah. So here's a suggestion then. Maybe okay. not in a week, but we should do a part two then where then we go into not just philosophical Christianity. What about mystical Christianity then? Let's do it. All right. I'm going to end it, but thanks for your time, man. Let me uh, close this off. Hold on. Stay on, though. I'm going to hit end, okay. but I'll still be able to talk to you. Thanks. Okay.